All right, we got a lot. I know it's six verses. We got a lot to get into. And if it's new for you, if this is your first time here, this may not be typical. If you've been around for a while, you know that maybe nothing is typical when it comes to uh, preaching. It depends on the text. It depends on the context. It depends on what, what the Lord needs to do in us. But with that said, let's go. First John 4, look at first, uh, the first verse. I want you to see this. If you have your Bible, First John 4, verse 1. If you need one, there's one underneath the seat underneath you or in front of you. First John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, this is, I think, the sixth or seventh time he said this point, to this point. Sixth time. Dear friends. So let me just start off. You see the affection again, right? I know many of us, like, we just go straight to the commands. We don't like these things. We don't like that someone tells us that we should do something. But God's telling you to do something. And that's okay. But he starts off with this affectionate address again. Dear friends. Because why? Because he's concerned about them. And what is he concerned about? Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Up to this point in 1 John, we know God loves us. If you're in Christ, you know that God loves you, he's adopted you, and he has given you his spirit. And in the last section, we saw that God commanded us to, to two things. Like it summarizes the whole book of John with these two commands. Believe in the Son, Jesus, and love one another. He said it in a way that was ongoing action. So he said, keep believing in the Son. That is a present tense verb. So it means keep ongoing action. I'm going to keep believing in Jesus, and I'm going to keep loving one another. But now he turns to false spirits and false prophets. Okay? So let's talk about false spirits. Number one, John says, do not believe every spirit, but test them. Test if they are from God. Now, if you think about the early church in the context here, the early church was experiencing a massive amount of supernatural phenomenon and miraculous activity, prophecies, healings, tongues, deliverance. And it seems like John's readers were in the habit of uncritically upset, of accepting everything that's supernatural. Meaning, if it's supernatural, it must be from God, so we're going to bank on everything that's supernatural. It's from God. It's going to be good for us. And John is saying, hold up. We need discernment. We need discernment. Because there are spirits, yes, but all spirits aren't from God. We must test the spirits to see if they are from God. All supernatural events, all supernatural words aren't from God. We need to serve. We need to test this. John Stott wrote, unbelief can be as much a mark of spiritual maturity as belief. What that means is we cannot remain gullible and naive about supernatural phenomena. Now you need to believe in the Son and you need to disbelieve the spirits that are telling you things contrary to who Jesus is and what Jesus said. We need to be wise and know. So if you just think about knowing the strategies of the enemy, you know what you need to know up front, and I'll tell you. You need to know that God creates and this devil counterfeits. 
Like God sends missionaries to the world, and what, is, what does the devil do? He counterfeits, and he sends false prophets to the world. God gives the church teachers. The devil sends false teachers, what Paul calls them, wolves into the church. God creates, and then Satan merely counterfeits. Why? He's not even creative enough to come up with his own stuff. He has to counterfeit God. God gives his children love. You know what the devil does? He tempts us with lust. God gives us revelation. You know what the devil does? He counterfeits. He sends lying demons to lie to us. Now, let me pause. I wanted to get into a, a, a quick dive and then pause here. And let me just acknowledge what I think might be happening in the room inside of you. C.S. Lewis said that we're all living in the hangover of naturalism. That naturalism is in our bones. Now, you may be unaware of it like a fish swimming in water, but the culture you swam in, if you grew up in the Western world, was one that articulated and assumed that there is nothing beyond this world. That naturalism says that everything that you can see, that's all there is. There's nothing beyond the natural, naturalistic forces, naturalistic explanation of things. And in naturalism, which we all live in because we live in the Western world, means that we so often dismiss and deny supernatural and spiritual explanations. We discount them. We dismiss them. We exclude them. Which means some of you deny that the miraculous events in the Gospels and Acts, all of Scripture, could never have happened. feel a little bit like Thomas Jefferson, like, I can take my knife and I can cut out of like the miraculous stuff out of the Bible and then just bank on it as a good document for morality. You may consider this as maybe legend, folklore, and so you deny the reality of miracles or the reality of demonic activity. But even if that's you, even if that's what's going on, when I say, hey, Test the spirits. Hey, there's spirits. Hey, there's some spirits and not all spirits are from God. And you just feel that in you. I think if that's where you're like, ah, oh, no, there can't be. You just have that pushback in you. But even if that's you, I know that you're still haunted by the possibility of belief. You, you may have a lot of objections and arguments up here in your mind, but there's a rumbling in your heart where you long for fullness because you know what the naturalistic worldview does? It puts everything flat. There's nothing beyond this. There's no scope. There's no future. This is it. All that you experience now, all that you can taste, see, feel, think about, that's it. There's nothing beyond. But in that, you still feel that long for meaning and purpose and fulfillment You have an intuitive sense that we aren't just determined, we're active, creative agents. You probably question if our ethical motives really reduce to mere biological instinct, just the, the things firing off in our brains. That's, that's the basis of our morality. You question, can it be just that? Is that what it's all going to do? And then art and nature moves you so deeply because they tap into a sense of transcendence. That's the peace that you're feeling. 
you may be formed by a natural worldview, but you are living in a fathered world. You long for something beyond what you can see. You long for a sense of transcendence. So with that, please don't dismiss this passage <laughs> too early because Christianity might have something to say here about how the world is actually working. So here are your options, honestly. You can deny demons exist or you can say there's demons everywhere, there's a demon behind every rock. Or you can acknowledge what the Bible paints. In the Bible paints, there are demons behind some rocks. There are. There's demons behind some rocks. And what are they doing? Well, last week we saw that when our heart condemns us, accuses us, we trust that God is greater than our heart and we trust that he knows everything. Which means when our hearts condemn us, we know that he knows that he's declared us righteous, no longer condemned. He's the judge, not our hearts. But in this context, coming right off of our hearts condemn us, you see that this is also what evil spirits do. They join in with our hearts, energize our hearts, and lie to us and accuse us and condemn us. So much so that one of the titles of the devil is the accuser of the brethren. So if you don't think his minions are accusing you, then there's something off in your understanding and your worldview to not acknowledge that demons are coming after to condemn, to accuse, to try to steal your joy in life in Jesus. The enemy loves, loves to lie and accuse us. Sam Storms in Understanding Spiritual Warfare writes this, Satan and the mnemonic powers are ever at work to spawn false doctrines and deceptive philosophies as well as corrupt concepts of the Christian life in order to undermine the spiritual vitality of believers and their single-minded devotion to Jesus. That's what they're doing. Why should you test the spirits? Because some spirits are trying to undermine your spiritual vitality and still rob your single-minded devotion to Jesus. It should come as no surprise that Satan employs specific individuals to achieve this goal. They are variously known as false teachers or false prophets. We'll get into false prophets in one second at first. And thinking about how the enemy loves to lie and accuse us, I just want to give you something that I've used for years as a tool with people. And I just want to give it to all of us so that you can fight against the enemy who lies to you. This means the enemy accuses you. If you think about your own internal, maybe self-talk, you know what's a good way to understand or discern between God's voice, your voice, and the enemy's voice? Is that a, another person usually speaks in the second person to you. You don't usually speak in the second person. I don't typically say, you're trash, Ryan. You're dirty. You're gross. No one can love you. You're ridiculous. 
I don't typically speak to myself. You know who does speak to me? Other people. And if I'm hearing that inside, what can I maybe connect that to? The enemy who wants to condemn me and feel dirty and defiled and rob me of my spiritual vitality. So I'll tell you, one of the primary ways that, that I experience attack is through dreams. Anytime we're leading up to a big moment, maybe a cycle of redemption groups, maybe planting the church, <laughs> I get some of the worst dreams I've ever had in my life, and I don't dream really any other times or remember those dreams. And they're dreams of violent, gross, degrading behavior, and I wake up and feel as if it's real and think, what did I do? And if I don't talk to someone about that, if I don't share that with my wife, I don't share that uh, with, with someone at work, you know what happens? I just, I have this ongoing throughout the day rumbling that I'm gross and dirty and defiled underneath. Like it's going in my heart where I'm not even thinking about it. I feel it all day and it messes with my day. What I'm saying is that's what the enemy loves to do to you to wreck you, to condemn you, to steal your joy that day, to make you feel so defiled that you won't believe the truth of who you are in Jesus, that you won't love others and care and help and glorify God in your day. So if the enemy's lying to you, he's often gonna speak to you with you language. You're gross, you're dirty. He's also gonna condemn you, not convict you. If you're hearing that voice, and it's cloudy and vague, and you can't get a sense of, like, why am I dirty? Why am I undefiled? Where have I sinned? That is the enemy, because he loves to condemn you. You know what the Spirit does? He convicts you. So he's going to give you something specific, show you for your joy. The enemy is going to condemn you. Why? For your despair. So you've got to understand, who is speaking to me? So this is what I do. I take uh, a piece of paper, and I say, hey, if this is you, if you're hearing lies from the enemy, give me four columns. Give me four columns on a piece of paper. And in the first column, write out, what are the lies you're hearing from the enemy? You're gross, you're dirty, you're defiled, no one loves you, you're unlovable, you're not enough, you're insufficient. You hear all these things from me. Put them down. So write one. And then... Tell me in the next column, if you believe that lie, what's the fruit? What's the consequence? If you believe that, what the enemy has lied to you about, what's the fruit? I want you to see that. See, what does this look like for me to not believe Jesus, but to believe the one who's accusing me? How that affects you. And then I want to say, okay, now that you've seen that, what is the counter truth from Scripture? Not the counter truth from a platitude that you can kind of make sense of, like, I think it is scriptural, and they, like, I think it gives good teaching about you. Now, I want you to be able to root like Jesus did when he's facing the devil and say, Deuteronomy says, and I can quote this. That's what I want you to do. So look at the counter truth from scripture. And then look, if I believe this from scripture, what's the fruit of that? And imagine, what could my life be? What would it look like if I believed what God says to me or what God says about me? And if you have two or three, four lies that you're working through or you're hearing, then put them down and work through each one of them to fight back. 
We are in a war. A cosmic battle. This, this is where C.S. Lewis and, and so many others throughout church history have said, wake up. Stop sleeping. This is not sideline. Everything's going okay, so just spec, like be a spectator. This is a wartime mentality because not only is your sin trying to kill you, but also is the enemy and this idolatrous age, and you're going to fight to intentionally follow Jesus in every day of life. You will not drift towards holiness. You will not drift towards fighting the enemy. It will take that training in godliness, that sweaty effort powered by God's grace to fight the enemy. So avail yourselves to the tools that God has given you. So fight the lies with what? The truth. It's the sword of the spirit. You can defend all day, but Jesus tells us, step forward, stab the enemy with the word, and keep going. I don't have time to go in all the ways the enemy can attack, and that's also not the point of this text. But I do want you to hear this. I want you to know this. Sam Storm says, clearly, no Christian can be swallowed up by Satan or robbed of the salvation. So when you start worrying a little bit, like, what does all these attacks mean? I want you to know this. <laughs> clearly, no Christian can be swallowed up by Satan or robbed of the salvation, life, and love of the Father. The Christian cannot be owned by Satan or separated from the love of God in Christ. Now let's talk about false prophets. So false spirits, now false prophets. He says, test the spirits, test them from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So as I said, the devil energizes and uh, commissions false prophets these are the Antichrist, the false teachers that John has been talking about throughout this whole book. At one time, they were part of the church. At one time, they were serving and actively involved in the ministry of the church. They seemed like Christians, but now they deny Jesus is the Messiah. They deny that he came in the flesh, and they're actively teaching that and trying to persuade people who do believe in Jesus to not to, to disown that part, to deny this part. Jesus, in Matthew 7, 16, told us, you will know them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then Paul, in his letters to the churches, wrote some serious, severe words. Why? To try to help his churches to spot the fruits of disguised wolves. Like, they, they're wearing sheep clothing, but actually they're wolves. And so you need to spot the fruits of the skies, wolves infiltrating the flock. In Acts 20, Paul is passing by Ephesians, so he asks the Ephesian elders to come to him, and he goes to them, and he tells them this one. It's a long address, but this is one thing he tells them. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. He's talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, Okay? So think just a small group, and he's saying, savage wolves will come in among you, in your church, not sparing the flock. 
this is, this is rough. Men will rise up even from your own number. That could be the elder body that he's talking about. It could be the, 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 the whole church. So he's saying, from your own, people are going to rise up and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. This is what's happening in 1 John. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stop warning each of you with tears. And so he's saying test the spirits because not everywhere, not every spirit is from God and he's going to get into that. That's where he's leading us is how to test. But I want you to just think about false prophets and I'm going to look at and think about 2 Timothy and talk about false prophets. John Bloom on Desiring God, he covers three of these fruits as described in 2 Timothy. I just want you to see it because I want what he said. I want you to be on the alert. I want you to be on the alert. I want you to be vigilantly mindful of who you are listening to, who you are reading, who are you letting to have influence in your lives and your heart. So John Bloom talks about these opponents, these false prophets, and uh, talks about the fruits that you can see from false prophets, and this is what he lays out. Three different characteristics of false prophets. Are you guys with me? Okay. I know, I know it's not a pep rally. I know this is serious and somber. But we need to take this seriously and somber. To be on the alert. So fruits and fall, fruits of false prophets and teachers. Number one, he says a pious disguise. A pious disguise. This is all from 2 Timothy. Uh, but he says their wolfish aim, self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. Their sheep-like clothing, the appearance of godliness. But their fruit, a lack of personal holiness. So they have this appearance of godliness, but actually not a genuine, heartfelt commitment to pursuing Jesus and being more like Jesus. They're denying its power. They're like the, the, the rotted tree. Like it looks good made from the inside, but when you see the hollow center or the everything breaking apart internally, that's what's happening. There's not, they're not growing in practical holiness. They're growing in performed holiness. That's a difference. It looks good. Other people are like, we can honor one another in those times, right? And our member meetings and those things, like, you know? And that person that gets honor knows that something's off inside the pious disguise. Number two, what's another fruit of false prophets? They oppose the truth. In that text, he talks about them uh, trying to pursue their own ambition, self-promotion, to be seen as like, hey, we're the legit ones, not that other person. Their sheep-like clothing, it's an image of spiritual power and or, the and or theological, you know, you know how I struggle with pronouncing words sometimes. And their recognizable fruit, you can pronounce it in your mind. If you can, kudos. Their, rec their recognizable fruit, Manip manipulation of susceptible people, impressive appearance of spiritual power, accompanied by advocacy for doctrines that undermine the gospel, 
opposition to godly leaders. When it really comes down to brass tacks, they're going to fight against the truth. The close-handed issues that we're going to hold on to, they want to fight over those things. They want to deny those things. You'll see it's going to come down to Jesus' incarnation, his divinity, or his humanity. That's what it's always going to come back to. And number three, adversity avoidance. So this is not selfish ambition. Their aim is self-preservation. Their sheep-like clothing, confident assertions, First Timothy says, and controlling leadership and give the appearance of courage. So it's like, man, they look legit. They're like, they're taking charge of this, and they have like, courage and they're leading out in this but they're recognizable fruit avoidance of personal sacrifice and public persecution for the sake of preserving reputation status wealth and comfort so when it comes down to it they're more concerned with their reputation than jesus's and so if there's going to be adversity when it comes to following jesus they'll bail or avoid it because what they want is preserve their own reputation their own status, their own comfort. So beware of false prophets. They are actively energized by demonic power to persuade you something different about Jesus. Be on the alert. Why? They're actively trying to deceive you. So do not believe every spirit, but test them. Do not believe every spirit, but test them. To test if they are from God or not. And then John tells us how to test them. Verse 2. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now, it is already in the world. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, contra all the evil spirits, you know what he does? He just sheds more and more and more light on Jesus. The Spirit of truth leads us into the truth of Jesus. The Spirit of God keeps magnifying, exalting, lifting up, showing off the glory of the Son of God. And so the Spirit of God is going to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the liberating King, the Son of God forever, fully God and fully man. That's what the Spirit of God confesses. If another spirit says something else different about Jesus than the Spirit, then you should run, stab them with the sword of God. I had to clarify, I got a little too excited. I want you to actually get into violence. I want you to fight with the Bible and move on. Meaning, don't give them an ear. Don't keep thinking about it. Don't keep wrestling with it. Don't keep it, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Shut it down. Just like your sin. When you start getting desires for sin, you have that moment where you can say, no right now. I'm gonna say no. God, please help me. I wanna say no right now. Or you can keep wrestling with it, thinking about it, uh, considering it. Maybe it'll be this way or start justifying it. Say no. Start. Just say no. Do not give an ear to false prophets. Listen to the Bible and keep moving forward. This is what John is experiencing. With John, in his era, there's a, a group called the Docetists, and they deny Jesus' humanity by saying that he's just like a ghost that kind of 
schooned around the world the whole time, just floated. Then a, a man named Serinthus said, the spirit of God's Messiah empowered the human Jesus at his baptism, but then left him at his crucifixion. I'm like, what? This is what John is experiencing in the early church. The bottom line is that they denied the genuine reality of the incarnation and the wedding of God, of Jesus being fully God and fully man. That's what they're denying. And I know, as I said last week, the past five years have been culturally chaotic and confusing, how much things have changed. And I know it's trendy or talked a lot about to walk away from Jesus in the church. But from this until now, we should see this as we shouldn't be surprised that people walk away from Jesus. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. They act like they're a part of the community. They're actually involved in things. But if they don't have genuine hearts, if God has not rescued them, they're going to fall away. And most likely on the way out, they're going to try to grab as many people as they can. Carl Truman, in uh, I think it's a Washington Post article, he wrote this. In time immemorial, people have lost their faith. It's interesting because now it's used with this pseudo-intellectual language of deconstruction in order to describe it. It's old thinking packaged in trendy postmodern language. So I, I don't know of any leaders in our current day that are saying that Jesus was a ghost, just kind of like flowing through the world when he was on earth. But I do know leaders and pastors that are denying Jesus and walking away, denying his incarnation or denying his divinity or denying his humanity. I mean, Joshua Harris has succumbed to the sexual revolution. Rob Bell now advocates universalism. Jen Hatmaker now speaks of a Jesus that doesn't match the Gospels. Don't trust them because they say kind words about Jesus. Trust them because they say praising, worshipful words about Jesus and confess accurate truth about Jesus. Listen to them. Just because they say something nice about Jesus doesn't mean they're trustworthy. You want to see that they actually submit and worship Jesus and actually confess the truth about Jesus, about his incarnation. Yes, he was born of a virgin, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yes, he is fully God. Yes, he is fully man. And will he be forever? Yes, that's how he reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. So test the spirits. Test them. Don't just trust everyone that says or reports their uh, 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 teacher for Jesus or a leader for Jesus. You actually have to test them by their fruits, their heart, their actions, and their words. Be aware. Test the spirits. Is what they report in line with the apostles' teaching? How else do we test them? Let me pause and just say something so you know. There's a difference between theological error and theological heresy. You can think about Apollos, so you don't lump all the people in your mind into one or the other group. Let's have even discernment on that. 
There may be a brother and sister in here that are like, ooh, that's a false wolf because uh, there's this thing. Because they didn't, they, they've said things, and I just don't think they understand this part uh, about Jesus, and so they're way off. So let's stab them with the word of God. No. You need to know that there is a brother in the Acts named Apollos, very gifted communicator, off on some things. And do you know what Ananias' fire did to them? Not Ananias' fire. Priscilla and Aquila. You know what they did to them? Just, you, you have two couples. You know, there's good names. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, you know what they did? They said, hey, Apollos, come over here. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit. And you know what he said? Thank you. And he grew from it. And then he stopped teaching that theological error. That's it. Okay. But test the spirits. Is it in line with the apostles' teaching? Now let's get into verse 4. Last little section, 1 John 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Last week, you know what we saw the difference between? The spirit of accusation and the spirit of adoption. And this week we're seeing the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. But it begins again with such a gentle, pastoral, uh, old man in love with Jesus writing to younger people in the faith. Dear little children, say, God is your father. Don't forget this. God is your father. You are a dearly beloved daughter. You're a ferociously loved son. And you have conquered the heretics and the evil spirits. Why? Because greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. You have conquered. Are there still battles? Yes. But you have conquered. I mean, social media is a powerful tool for celebrity Christians who have left Jesus and want to persuade everyone to join with them. Social media is a powerful tool, but the Holy Spirit is God Almighty. So greater is he. No matter if they set up classes for how to deconstruct for other people uh, uh, to, to follow them in their same vein, greater is the Holy Spirit than their deceptions and devices. Greater. The Holy Spirit in you is greater. Jesus triumphed over Satan and all his demons through his work of redemption, particularly by canceling the power of sin at the cross. So what, what does the devil use to accuse you so often? Your list of sins. And Colossians tell us that all that list of everything you've done wrong and everything you are sinning and everything that you're committing treason against God in the future has been nailed to the cross of Jesus and canceled and it's been paid for. So the enemy is disarmed. You've got the sword in your hand, you've got the shield of faith, you've got the breastplate of righteousness, you've got the helmet of salvation, you've got nice shoes like these, the gospel of peace, and you know what? 
he is disarmed because the sin that you committed, he can't use against you. He tries, but it's been canceled. So what you need to do if you're in the midst of this fight is to appropriate the truth of the gospel. When the enemy says, you're gross, you've done all these things, how could you be loved? How could you be one of God's children? You say, shh, Jesus died for me. That's how. Jesus loves me. That's how. Jesus conquered you. You are essentially waiting in prison until the time in jail, waiting for your time to head to prison in punishment. You've been conquered, enemy. He's already condemned. And then in Luke 17, in Colossians, you have the principle of authority, that you have been given authority by Jesus. And the principle of authority is this, that we are now in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the Lord and head of all power and authority, which means Satan has absolutely no legitimate authority over the believer. We are free from Satan's claim on us. Because of this, Dr. Gary Brashears states this, because of this text, 1 John 4, I'm far more dangerous to a demon than a demon is to me. I'm far more dangerous. Uh, think about a, 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 a wild animal. Will it be dangerous? Could it affect you if you're out on a hike? Yes. But if you know the things to do around that animal, you can stay away from it, protect yourself. It's the same thing here. That I'm going to trust the ordinary means of grace that God has given me to protect myself and my family from the evil one's schemes. I'm going to start with who I am in Jesus. I'm going to start with my authority in Jesus. I'm going to start with I'm a son of the Lord Most High. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power and love and self-control, not the spirit of fear. But if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, the Bible says you might be duped by naturalism and skepticism. Because why? I want you to see this. This may be your spot right now. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? Maybe the God of this world has blinded your eyes. Ephesians 2.2 states, that if you haven't met Jesus, then you're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is the evil one. And then 1 John 5, 19, we'll see in a few weeks, says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so you may be blinded, you may be duped, you may not actually genuinely know Jesus. And what I'll ask you is, will you listen to yourself and the false god of this world or will you listen to Jesus and the apostles' teachings? John has said, 
God has loved us and sent his son to be the atonement for our sins, that the son so loved us that he laid down his life for us. And so the response to Jesus this morning is not say, oh, I'll just stay blind. I won't really see this. I'll keep going on way. It is to put your faith in Jesus who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died in your place for your sins, and rose victoriously from the grave, and now reigns eternally beside the Father. That's who Jesus is. If you're going to say you know God, those who know God, listen to God, listen to the apostles. As a non-Christian, who are you going to keep listening to? What are you going to trust? Where are you going to put your hope and faith? And then Christian, can I just ask you as well, what are you listening to? Are these teachers and leaders and authors you're listening to, do they confess and teach the apostles' doctrine? Do they teach and clearly communicate the incarnation of Jesus and his divinity and his humanity? Be alert. The devil swims in lies, in anger, in sexual sin. Be on the alert. You open up. There, there's, there's the, these are three big demonic inroads that I've seen throughout my life. Of opening ourselves up to influence from the demonic. And it's when you listen to lies when you stay angry, and when you refuse to forgive in sexual sin. So I'm going to finish with this. I want to give you, maybe I'm not. I should. I'm going to finish with this. Spiritual disciplines to protect you and ourselves from demonic lies and deception. Number one, feed on the word. Feed on the word. I've said that six times this far, but I'll put it there. Feed on the word. The truth of the apostles. Hide it in your heart. Learn theology. Fight the enemy with scripture like Jesus. Be filled with the spirit like Jesus. Feed on the word of God. Number two, forgive those who sinned against you. Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down on your anger to give an occasion, to give a space for the devil, the demonic, into your life, to, to, to energize that, to encourage that, to keep saying, yes, hate that person. Yes, go into bitterness. Yes, refuse to forgive them. Yes, turn cold towards them. That's what the enemy loves for you to do is to refuse to forgive, to stay in that bitterness and anger. So how do you fight the enemy in that? You forgive. You forgive because you've been forgiven by God in Christ. Then number three, flee sexual immorality. When you sin, repent quickly. Keep short sin accounts. So number one, just run from all sexual immorality. Back to when it starts. When you first hear it, see it, think about it, say no then. Cut it off at the beginning. Run from it. And then if you do sin, repent quickly. Turn to Jesus. 
Don't stay in that and let that add to another one, add to another, and add to another one. Then you just have this series of ongoing, habitual, unconfessed, and unrepentant sin, and you're essentially saying, I love for the demonic to come into my life and mess with me and lie to me and energize my uh, sinful desires. I love that. No, repent, turn, run to Jesus and say, I need your mercy again. Wash me clean, forgive me, help me forgive others, and, and let me stay true to you. Go that way. The big picture idea is simple, but it just weaves into everything. The big picture is because many false prophets have gone into the world, test the spirits. Test them and see if they're from God or not. Are you going to fight? Are you going to fight? Are you going to feed on the word? Are you going to forgive? Are you going to turn off, throw away, burn, cut up that false prophet, the false teaching that you are toying with, messing around with? Are you going to fight? This is a war. I know you're all sitting I know someone turned the ACs on yesterday. It's very comfortable, but you're in a war. It's really hard to have a war room meeting when you're all just sitting there, very calm and still, but this is what's happening. You're in a war. How are you going to fight? How will you move forward? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you do this in us, that you'd work this in us, that we would, well, I guess first, Lord, I, I want to come back to that verse 4. Would you remind us again and pour out your affections for us again, that we would know the Father's affections for us? Would you, would you pour that into our hearts right now, Spirit? And then, Lord, if if there's warfare, if there's oppression, if there's demonization, I pray that you would free our brothers and sisters. If there's someone that doesn't know you and is in bondage to the evil one, I say, I pray that you would set them free now. And then, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us. You would lead us to the truth. You would point us to Jesus. And that you continue to give us gifts to give to others and to build up this body. That we would be working on all cylinders, pursuing you and pushing back darkness and fighting against the sin in us, the enemy who trying to steal, kill, and destroy and the incessant waves of this idolatrous age that wants to form us more into its image than Jesus' image. I pray against it all. In Jesus' name, amen.